morning, good afternoon, and good evening. This is another wonderful special called Ice Cap Disc, where this time I will be asking the question to Mark. Mark, I believe you're with us. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. How are you, sir? Very well, thank you. How are you? Oh, well, it's a, it's a spring morning. Uh, the, the, the birds are chirping. The workmen are drilling, and uh, I'm feeling fit as a third-hand fiddle. Well, that's good news, because today we're going to be checkpointing uh, various stages of your life. Um, all of these stages have contributed to who you are today, and it will be really interesting for me to kind of turn the table <laughs> on you. After doing my special, that I found that really... Yeah really therapeutic like really uh insightful um yeah so thank you for that um and i i hope that i can do justice in in return uh, listen i have no doubt the skills i've seen you portray that over the next 74 editions you will be able to do that with <laughs> immense skill um, so what's been a, a little bit of a, a running joke is that my special uh, covers my, well, it was almost 35 years, but let's just call it 35 years of my life in, I think it was three episodes. Yeah. And, the, and yeah. then we did like a final one, I think. Yeah, we did a wrap up one. Two. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. um, so it will be interesting to see how 60 years <laughs> turns out. Um, Mark yeah. believes that we're going to be spending 64 episodes <laughs> so, sit comfortable everyone <laughs> yeah it's um we're gonna need to manage that we'll manage okay i want it in one and that's it um, yeah, good luck for that one yeah <laughs> <laughs> no um okay so to kind of preface this once again, there's there's a, a show on which station is it? So Radio Four usually. Radio Four, BBC Radio Four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a gentleman on there who interviews guests, and he. I asks, believe it's a woman now. It, it okay. used to be a gentleman. It's now a woman, I think. Kirsty. Oh, fantastic! Brilliant. Um, brilliant. Yeah. Kirsty Gallagher. No, Kirsty. Oh, okay. Can't remember her surname. Sorry. No worries. Um, well. Yeah, it, it's going to be interesting to see which songs, themes, albums, singles kind of really stood out for you at, at different times of, of your life. Um, it'll be interesting to see the differences and also the similarities. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Um, okay, so... Sorry, and if you're listening, pour yourself a nice long drink, sit back yeah. and relax. Please do that. Um, okay, so let's let's get into it now. So, Mark Wilson, <clears throat> thank you for joining us today. I'm sure the uh, Curious Anarchy listeners will be eagerly anticipating what's to come. Um, let... yeah, that's, that's your words, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's begin with when you were born okay 
let's begin with it's September, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Um, where were you born, and when? I was born in a place called the Middlesex Hospital, which is in the West End of London. It was a September evening. And my parents remember it very well because it was actually the Jewish festival of Rosh Hashanah, which is the new year. So I was born on the Jewish festival of the new year, which interrupted their observing the, the festival itself. Hopefully I don't, I hope not mind too much. Um, as I was their firstborn, so obviously um, it was quite an exciting and a scary time for them. You still there? Yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, good, good. good. I was just sorry. thinking back to the time when I was born, sorry. <clears throat> you know, uh, I, this, this is the problem when you're, you're uh, not doing it via video. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so bear with us we uh hopefully soon very soon we will be uh transferring over to yeah. video format yeah. um but meantime please bear with us um i actually quite enjoy audio only i i enjoy listening to the radio i quite enjoy the audios um, to be fair mm, mm. um so yeah let, let, let's let's get back to, to, to mark wilson so you were born in middlesex well, um, hospital, yeah. Middlesex Hospital, yeah, yeah, yeah. in the West End. Yeah. And the, where where were you living at this point? Where were your, your parents? So my pa- okay, so my um my parents had moved well my mum had moved where she okay, so she had grown up in Hackney in um yeah, near Victoria Park in Hackney and it'd been quite a tough upbringing of her because she was an only child because her brother died when he was 13 before she was born okay. and it had quite a harrowing uh, impact on her mother and father okay um so for her to actually leave the area and leave her community was quite tough mm. but when they got married they decided they wanted to start pastures new so they went to north london to a place called arnest grove and they wanted to start there okay. um, which was both exciting and quite frightening at the same time. Uh, to leave a big community, I mean, you know, we can draw a parallel, say, with the Caribbean community when people left the area where it was numerous amount of their friends and relatives and, and distant relatives and everything, and to go to set off somewhere else in the UK. It's quite harrowing to do that when you're one of a few, not one of many. When up till then, everybody in the community had your back, so to speak. Mm. And that's kind of what they were setting up to do. Um, I suppose when we're talking about this, I want to talk about my life as a sort of tapestry. Because mm. it has many different layers and many different effects on it. So I grew up into a family that uh, my mum will always remind me that she only survived the Holocaust by the fact that the Germans only reached the Isle of Wight. They didn't come any further into the United Kingdom. Right. And that, that's very harrowing for her. She grew up, you know, I could say a single child in, a, in, a, in the flats in Hackney. Um, yeah. And they were looking at the planes flying overhead, bombing the, the London. And I think they left, her and her mother left London for one, they were meant to go and stay in Wales when the, when the Blitz happened. 
and they only stayed for one night because they felt so alien when they went to stay at someone's house who had completely different values and culture and, and religion and everything to them. So they rather, my mum said we would rather face the bombs than to have stayed there longer. Which is uh, quite... Just, just for the sort of, it just interjects slightly there. Sorry, um, yeah. The, the Blitz. It was a German bombing campaign against the United Kingdom in 1940 and 1941 during the Second yeah. World War. So what happened was Hitler had intended to invade the United Kingdom and he had a number of different strategies because at the time, you have to remember at the time, the German army had not been defeated, ever. So they were on a crest of a wave thinking they could beat anyone and they had a number of tactics to try and beat the English. So first they tried to bomb the air, the the airfields where all the planes were and when that didn't work they switched to bombing the civilian population hoping they were so afraid they'd surrender and the whole point was to to create the colony so they could then bring their boats across and conquer the country so if anyone watches these old films of the germans conquering england it was this was very much the fear that they had at the time that an island population quite afraid that this was what the plan was and uh, history tells us that Hitler had to delay for one year, and that year gave Britain time to build the planes that they didn't have. So, for my mum growing up in the East End, which was right... Okay, so nowadays, the East End of London is very different to what it was then. Um, people that are listening, for example, in Bilbao in Spain will understand what I'm saying, that once it was a thriving dockyard. Glasgow as well, you know, these were places where active docks where, you know, when you hear about the, the, the blockage in the Suez this week, you know, those boats would come in, bring everything to the United Kingdom, including people, through the docks. And so, like later on, when people settled near where they landed, when they flew into the United Kingdom, at that time, a lot of, you know, you can trace in the east end of London, every population of immigrants that have arrived in London since the Huguenots. You know, they've each had a, a spell, a de you know, a decade or whatever, living in the East End before they moved further into the United Kingdom. Um, but it was also the area that the Germans bombed because they wanted to bomb the population, but they also wanted to bomb the supply of food and, and machines and everything that was coming into the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. So it was the most heavily bombed area. And my mum's got hundreds of stories of people that, like, for example, stayed in the flats and, uh, and got bombed because they didn't want to leave their flat. Or people who, or what, a couple of people died in Mile End Tube Station, uh, Bethnal Green Tube Station when they were running downstairs to get away from the bombs and, and it caused a stampede and, and, and a few people got trampled. Wow. So, and they stayed in the in the tube station overnight sort of thing. They slept in the tube station in their hundreds, not just one or two hundreds. So um, this was the atmosphere she grew up in. And, um, for her, she felt that she could never be safe in this world as a Jewish person because of that experience. Mm. And to make matters slightly worse, my mum and dad, when they got married, my mum came from a very working class family in Hackney and my dad came from a, a middle class family in Woodside Park. And my dad's side didn't really to know my mum because she wasn't religious enough and because she wasn't posh enough. So we've always had that kind of class divide even in my family. So that's what I grew up into, if you like. 
So when I was going to school, I mean, I'll just give you one example, Jermaine, if you like, of my school experience. Which, yeah, sure. Which mirrors what I'm talking about. Um, it's a contrasting image. One image was me with a, a young um, Caribbean boy in a... Our teacher was the wife of the mayor. And uh, I can't remember how this happened, but we, me and this boy ended up on the front page of the local newspaper, you know, in our classroom with our, you know, our school uniforms on doing our work. And I'm not sure why it was a story, but it was. So that was one memory I have of growing up. And the other memory was a, a boy that, uh, whose family were National Front, who were the pre-runners to BMP, who used to attack me every day for being Jewish. And I literally had fights with him every single day. Wow. And one time I got called to see the head teacher who didn't particularly like me anyway, because I was always having fights, but because I was fighting because he kept calling me names. And we were, I mean, we're talking, I was between what, four and seven years old. I'm not talking, I was, I'm not okay. you know, in secondary school, I'm talking about junior school. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> I was called to see the head teacher with my mother because I'd torn his shirt. I couldn't go into detail why I torn it because even then at that age he didn't kind of grasp. So I just walked in the next day, carried on. So those are my two inviting memories of, of junior school, to be honest with you. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Um what at, at that stage, what songs or influences so, or songs kind of come to you? So there's again two there's two sides to that. So going back to the image of my parents trying starting fresh in a new it's the 1960s it's not actually 1960 it's the 60s it was um, a brave new start in a place they didn't really know you know houses that had just been built backing onto a park and all that sort of thing and um, <clears throat> the music that most summed up that that app of the time was a kind of happy music which was that of the Beatles. So I grew up more or less at the same time as the Beatles were getting famous. So, you know, what you heard when you were growing up on the radio, the songs I heard were the Beatles. Um, and there was a number of Beatles songs that would stand out because obviously they were a bit of a hit machine. They one hit after another. Um, um, so any of the top three or four Beatles songs that everyone in the world knows, like She Loves You, would have been the tunes that we would listen to at the time. But I also remember listening to the strains of Motown and Jamaica that we had here, like, uh, for example, Desmond Decker. And he had a song that was particularly poignant because obviously, you know, we were Jewish and we, we took a, a, a little bit of ownership of the song The Israelites. Uh, it was like a shit identity so we kind of enjoyed that tune so it was like so it was the Beatles and, and things like Desmond Decker that I grew up listening to I suppose at that age awesome um, if I can just take you back just just a few years um, so this might be 78 now okay yeah, yeah that's fine <laughs> your name Mark Wilson where, where does that come from so okay so there's two things around that Sorry, I think every story has two things. I, I, I need to explain, when I say my life is a bit of a tapestry, because it, it goes in many different directions, 
and also because I always, always ask the word why, whatever I'm doing. And it always opens up more doors than it closes. So therefore, <laughs> this goes on and on, if you know what I'm saying. So, okay, so with my name, my surname, which is my father's name, is Wilson. But when they came to the country, it would have been Wilsinski, because it, my, both my parents came from Poland uh, when there were attacks on Jewish people in the, the turn of the century. So it was, their, it was their parents or their grandparents that came here, escaping that. Lots of Jews in the United Kingdom who are like fifth generation are from Russian or Polish uh, heritage because of attacks by local people on them long before the Holocaust. Um, yeah. And so they left and often they have big Polish influences. So if you compare to Jewish people in, say, Spain, the, the, the cultural and, and dietary differences are quite extreme. And that's because uh, they came from a different part of the world to Spain. Um, so, uh, yeah, so my father's name was Wilsinski and they shortened it to Wilson so they could sound like they were English. Whereas my mother's uh, maiden name would have been uh, Elfenbein. And again, they got changed to Elfenbein when they came to England. Um, now, my name, Mark, uh, they didn't realize till after they'd named me that my name is Mark and my father's name is Spencer. And they hadn't clocked that they'd actually together wear Marks and Spencer. So that was an oversight, I think. I don't think it was planned on any. Right, point. okay. Um, it's, a running, it's a running joke in the family, but, it, you know. Um, my, my middle name is Leonard, which is the name of the, my mother's brother who died. So I inherited his name uh, as a um, tribute or whatever to him. Uh, I also have a Jewish name because in the Jewish culture in, in the United Kingdom, much like other cultures, um, if you're not native English, you tend to have a name from the culture you're from as well. So my Hebrew name is... Uh, Zephyrhuda Ben Schmiel. Okay. Uh, yeah, so that's what I grew up with those, with that twin identity, if you like. And what does that name mean? Uh, well, it's, again, it's names passed down from other, from relatives that have died. Okay. So you just adopt the name. I think one of the names means wolf, but I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't want to, you know, I like much, but. So the last part is Ben Schmuel, which is son of Schmuel. Now, Schmuel is my father. So in the same way, you'd be called son of someone here. Or, you know, when sometimes someone's called so-and-so the third, it's that sort of thing. So part of my okay. name is son of Schmuel, which is my father's name. And Zaf uh, is wolf, and Yehuda is, is like Judah. So most of the names came from the Bible. Most of the Jewish names come from the Bible. Yeah, yeah. Or the story of the Bible, I should say. Okay, so would it be fair to say then that the Bible, the, the your Jewish uh, roots kind of had a, a very significant impact on you yeah. in your early yeah. life? Very much so. I mean, I, as I said already, because my mum was so scarred by the Second World War and, and the treatment of the Jews, the destruction of the Jews, very much so. But the other thing, as a young man growing up in, in, in the culture, at the age of 13, you have what's called a bar mitzvah. And that's the point that historically you became a man. And we had okay. a ceremony and a, and a party for that in the same way you would have um, 
so my mind's gone blank for the for the Catholic community. You have a sort of um, you know the ceremony for children about 13, 12, 11, whatever they ever got. Is it confirmation or something? There's yeah. a ceremony. Yeah, I'm just saying, but it's it's similar in that it's a marking of coming of age. Um, so for a lot of Jewish kids in, in England, they're not great at speaking or reading Hebrew. So you have to spend a few years learning it so you can read the piece that you're going to read in synagogue for your passing the points for. Mm. So that was happening at the same time as well. And also, like I spoke to you the other day about Passover, our festivals were always different to English kids' festivals. So like when people had Christmas, we had Hanukkah. And so at those times, we felt a little bit alienated from native culture. Um, but we did it in the, you know, the thing of our own home. You know, and, and as I grew older, I got to see the same thing happen in Asian communities, Caribbean communities, in, in um, Islamic communities. I saw it all over, that the same thing was happening. I recognised the same templates of, you know, your house becoming a, a community hall so you can celebrate your culture without people feeling alienated or feeling the need to criticise it from those who are not part of it. Uh, and in the meantime, going to school and acting like an everyday child, you know. You know, I played football, I, you know, I, I, I was in chess clubs and all sorts of things. I was, you know, I was in very busy. I went to four schools. Okay, um, yeah. So two in junior and two in secondary. And I went to the local comprehensive junior school. I went to a private junior school. I went to a grammar school too comprehensive. Okay. What, what was the reason for that? What reason? So my mum wanted me to do well at school. Uh, she wanted me to come back academic. And I think I probably would have been if I wasn't such a curious person. So which is why I enjoy being on a Curious Anarchy uh, site because curiosity is really my middle name. Um, and so I was always exploring and asking things when in fact I should have been sitting down and studying. And also, I was always cracking jokes, which most teachers don't appreciate jokes. They struggle to hold the class of 13 in the first place, but they, they, they really struggle with comedians in their classrooms. I mean, if you talk to most comedians today, it's generally they became comedians from their school experiences. Can I just ask, how, how big, what was your class size in school? No, it wouldn't have been 30, sorry. Yeah. I mean, the, the private school I went to was 30, um, but the, okay. the junior schools on the whole wouldn't have been. Well, Junior schools and the whole tent didn't tend to be anyway. It's secondary schools were, had bigger classes. Um, but you see, you have to remember that when I was at school, they had corporal punishment. So you got caned in some of the schools. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have the level of exclusions that you have today because, you know, they just cane you and then you go back to class. And some kids would get caned four times a day, but they didn't care. But they weren't excluded, was the point. So they actually, so the class sizes were quite large anyway. Um, and uh, it was a form of, obviously, of control. And it worked to a degree in as much as we only had things called hostels, where if you were incredibly bad, you went to. So kids that were sort of set fire to the school or, or stabbed someone, they would go to a hostel 
which was a, a juvenile prison sort of thing. Yeah. But they were notorious because they were the exception. Whereas if I talk to you about exclusion units today, I could find you about 200 up and down the country. So the kind of rarity of them is much more defined when I was younger than it is today. Mm. Mm. Okay. Um, so... The, the the reason why you moved different schools was because... My parents okay, wanted me junior. to do well academically. They wanted me to go to university. Okay, so that ship what did that involve moving house no, 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 was, okay. no not at all no no again different in those days how you went to schools so you could technically go to a school in your borough rather than in your local area if you know what i'm saying so today it's much more it's much more over, overpopulated the, the number of schools is fewer um, you know the, the chance to get into a, a relatively decent school gets narrower and narrower in those days you could you could generally like i, I most schools I went to, I had to get a bus to. Okay. I mean, I know you did when you were at school, but I'm saying, generally speaking, I spoke to most people, they didn't, didn't have to. Most kids walked to school. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, if we look at the sort of latter stage of primary, so you're seven, eight, Right, nine. the other thing I need to throw in at this point, which I haven't yeah. thrown in, is that my mum's family were generally had been working people and lived in the East End where conditions were quite poor. So I went to funerals probably every two years from seven to 17. So I was burying one relative roughly every two years. And as a male child, I had to attend help. <coughs> that sort of stuff. It was quite harrowing. Uh, at such a young age, if you like. What what were you involved with? It's difficult to say. It's the culture, really. I mean, I think all cultures are the same like that. You know, young guys are expected to turn up. And what you have is a clear gender divide in funerals. In most cultures I've ever been to, you know, the women tend to do, you know, make the house tidy, make the teas, and the men tend to kind of carry anything that needs to be carried or go onto the grounds. But you're thrust into the male side, you can't, you know, to quote many cultures, you can't hang on to your mother's uh, apron strings. So you have to, as a man, go with your uncles and your aunts, and, uh, your uncles and your grandfathers, what have you, and attend the funeral of people. I wasn't ready for that, and um, I wasn't ready for how many I was going to attend either, to be honest. Mm. Uh, but it also was a stark stark class reminder to me the difference between my mum's side and my dad's side. On my dad's side, most of them are still alive still. Okay. And that's that is absolutely a class thing because, you know, as I say, my like my for example, my grandfather worked um supplied um prizes to fairgrounds to travelling folk. Uh, one of my uncles was uh, worked in the factory, one was uh, worked in the fish market. So they they were very, you know, in the heart of the working class community. And my, on my father's side, it, people were lawyers and accountants and rabbis and things like that. So it was a really clear class divide. The other thing I haven't said, which I should say, is that my, my father's side disowned my mum's side, but it also disowned us as well, my, disowned my dad. 
So he was ex- he was almost excommunicated from his own family, which again had a harrowing effect on him. Um, are you still with us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm just, I'm just contemplating. Um, okay. Um. So let's 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 take it from the age of seven then. Okay. At that point, what what songs before you'd gone to your your first six of successions of, of funerals yeah. have captured you at that point? So. There was a song at the time that I really liked called Lily the Pink. And it's a very strange song. It was a novelty song. It was sung by a band called The Scaffold, who were from Liverpool. And it was a really cheeky little number. But it was kind of cute as well. So it's something quite nice about it. Um, and I think it, it just, it, again, it summed up the, the time and the place. So that would be the song I remember from that point. Yeah, definitely. And the other one was a Beatles song called Obla Di Obla Da. And that's because I used to go with my mum twice a week to a place called Ridley Road, which was a market that was very, at the time, it was in uh, Stanford Hill, uh, around Stanford Hill, Dalston Way. And it was um, a very Jewish market. And as we were going to by the time I was 13, it was turning into a Caribbean market. So we would literally have a Jewish butcher next to a Caribbean butcher. And um, it was a really fun experience. Um, <clears throat> and that song kind of summed that up. If you listen to the words of it, it kind of sums up that time. I guess, I you still there, Jamie? Yeah. Yeah. I haven't put you to sleep um, yet, have I? Okay, so I think the, the, the next sort of phase then, we're actually 30 minutes in. Um, wow, are we? This is, we're, I haven't we're even started yet. Wow, okay. We're only at seven. Um, so, yeah. So uh, there's, another, um, th- there's okay. another thing I need to bring up as well, is that, right. so we backed onto a park. And so I could literally within 10 minutes being at my local park. And I spent all my time in that park. I was mad about playing football. Um, and I always joined in with older boys games. So I got kicked all over the place. I wasn't particularly fast and I wasn't particularly big. And I got kicked all over the place. And that's how I learned how to play football. I, got, I literally got roughed up from day one, met kids from all sorts of cultures. And, and I remember what was striking for me was we got, and this might be a little bit older, I can't remember what age I was, it was somewhere between 7 and 13. I was, so in the summer they had a play scheme. So it was a, it was a special project for kids to go to in the summer when we were not at school. And they'd had painting and they'd had model making, but they had sports teams as well. So they did athletics and things. And I remember I was in the five-a-side football team, but I, I had to go in goal because nobody else wanted to go in goal. And... We got through to the final. We played these other parts in the area. And we, we went somewhere like um, Edmonton for this Pins Park, I think it was, for this game, like tournament. And we got to the final. And we had a really amazing team of kids from all cultures, Irish, Caribbean, everything, African. Um, and we had a Turkish boy that was up front scoring all our goals. And then when we got to the final, 
uh, a young Caribbean boy went up to him and went, I'm playing now, you're not playing anymore. And he said, you can't say that to me. He said, I just have. And he just took his place. And we were like, all of us were like, what? What's going on here? And we just couldn't stop it. It was like mad. He just had enough front to do that sort of thing. Um, what happened? He just played. He got a medal. We won the, we won the tournament. <laughs> Oh, excellent. It was, it, was just, it was like how mad those days were. But I remember, actually, and I haven't mentioned this to you, Jermaine, but it was when I was around seven or eight. My sister yeah. and I, we used to go together to the park. We got chased out by the whole play scheme because we were Jewish. At the age of? Seven or eight. Okay. Yeah. Um, literally 30 kids making sure we left the park. Wow. Did you know these kids? Well, we thought we did. <laughs> Not as well as we thought we did. I, did. I mean, we went back the next day because that's the kind of kids me and my sister were. But yeah. it was pretty off-putting. And I've got to say, from the Jewish community in the area, we were the only two kids that went to it. Oh, okay. Because as you'll see later on in my story, a lot of Jewish kids like to take safe, easy options away from the, the mad crowd, if you like. Me and my sister have always been the kind of people to walk into that. <laughs> And you continue to do so. Well, there's a, a story I'll tell you later on when we're a bit older, well, late teens, when my sister got arrested for kicking a, a National Front guy in front of two police officers that were dragging him away. And she got she ended up in court. And it was one of the funniest things you'll ever see. Well, I'll tell you about it later, but... Um, yeah, we... we we'll come back to that, yeah, sure. Yeah, it's a story <laughs> you might want to revisit. Let's put it like that. Um, okay, so... We're now embarking upon the eighth birthday. Um, you said that you went to your first funeral at the age of seven. I mean, roughly. I'm who, not sure exactly. I'm not sure how exactly old I was. Um, I remember my grandmother died when I was nine, which was quite okay. traumatic. Um, right. Was that the first kind of? No, um, it wasn't the first one, but obviously. Something like immediate family. Yeah, it's the first immediate family, yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, I had uncles and friends that died, but I mean, talk about someone who's your immediate, immediate family, yeah. That was my first one. Again, that's quite... At the age of nine, then, um, how was that? I mean... How was that transition? I I think I'm still scarred by that sort of thing now, to be honest with you. I mean, at such a young age, you just can't make sense of it. Um, And the whole day is horrendous. And then the memories afterwards are horrendous. So it just, it was, it was very scarring, very scarring. Um, and to do it again a number of times, to eventually with my grand, when my grandfather passed away, would be the last person. Like, I mean, there was my grandmother on my on my mum on my father's side, but we weren't as close. Um, my grandfather was, I mean, much like. See, this is some of the similarities you and I have. My grandfather was probably the biggest influence on me when I was growing up outside of my parents. Yeah. Um, and I, when should I talk about him? So he was a bit older. I think I was in my late teens when he died. So he, he's a bit older, but his story is quite interesting. Um, just his whole story is quite interesting. For example, when he was uh, about 17, he ran away from England and stole away on a boat and went to Cairo. Uh, um, only stayed a couple of weeks and came back. He then um, 
at the age of 18, you said? Yeah. Okay. And that would have been around, literally around 1918, something like that, maybe 1920, 25 or something. When he was in his third, sorry, in the 30s, when he was about 20 something, he had trials for West Ham United, but he couldn't play for them because he couldn't give up his day job for the money he was getting, he would have got at West Ham. So, like, he said, came home and said to his mum, look, West Ham want me to play for them. And she said, well, you can't afford to give up your job for the money. Think about that in contrast to today's footballers. Mm. Anyway, so he, he did a few jobs, like uh, he was a furrier, which means cleaning out, gutting the fur of an animal so that the women could wear the fur as a coat. Um, okay. Who did he work for? So local factories. Like in the East End, you have to understand that the East End at that time was full of factories. Um, what they used to call them? Uh, sweatshops. Right. You know, yeah. they, they close all the windows. Half the people there can't speak English. Um, and it, and it's still, it was still the case when I was in the East End, which was 20 years ago, it was still the case. They still had sweatshops there, mainly yeah. in the Ben Crawley community. But I'm saying yeah, every generation, when they came off the boat, they put them into the factories. And, and basically, eventually, they learned to speak English and got jobs somewhere else. But but they started off in sweatshops, mm. and these were very hot, oppressive places. And people worked very long hours, very long hours. So very. When long. was the first time you noticed it? Which bit of it? The 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 sweatshop. Well, I knew about it from a from my grandparents. They told me about it. I didn't go to oh, okay. I didn't go to one because obviously they wouldn't take their grandson to it. It'd be crazy, and also they weren't working there anymore. So my grandfather went on to, as I said to before, he he became a supplier to fairgrounds of for the prizes that you win when you throw a coke, you know, when you knock a coconut off and things like that. So my dad tells a really funny story that when they, when they got when they got married, my mum's father offered him a job. And one of the things he had to do was drive up to the fairground and take the prizes to one of the, like, you know, imagine one of the, the uh, what they call them, you know, like the, the, the traveling community there. He had to take the prizes to a couple of the people there so they could put them on the stalls. So when he arrived, he drove up and um, there was all these big guys on the door and they're like, what do you want? He said, I'm from Mori, so everyone knew him as Mori, the swag man. When he died, the, fair, the, the, the uh, fairground people put a, an advert in the Jewish Chronicle to say, we miss Mori, the swag, swag man, who was my grandfather. Um, oh, right, okay. And um, so he said, Mori, the swag man sent me. I've got the prizes for the, for the thing. So they let him in and he gave the prizes. And so my grandfather told him to go back in two weeks' time and say, you go and collect the money for the for the prizes and he drove up same fellas on the door and they said what do you want and he said i've come to collect the you know the money for the, for the prizes what what money what prizes you know that i brought up two weeks ago don't know what you're talking about mate i'm from Murray the Swagman. who's he never heard of him and basically couldn't get in and that was his experience of uh working for my grandfather Wow. Was that was and the other thing was my mum would tell me stories that um, for half the year my grandfather never got paid because they couldn't do the job in the in the winter. 
So he would still supply them with stuff, but they wouldn't be able to pay him until they had a fair. So they had to wait for the fair. So we used to have loads of fairs in London, loads and loads. We've got, we still have some, but we used to have loads. And the ones you have now, you know, because everyone in the area goes to, but we used to have like them in every sort of big green area that you had would be a fair. Like where I live, there used to be a barn and a horse fair. And that, didn't, that stopped in the 50s. But I'm saying they had so many different types of fairs. And that's where they made their money, the, the, the traveling fairs. And when they made their money, then they pay, then they pay my, my uh, grandfather. So he went on to do that. Now, <clears throat> he'd saved quite a lot of money that way. And they were the first people in the flats to have a fridge, for example. And... Um, <clears throat> Later on in life, as he got older, unfortunately, when my grandfather, when my grandmother died, he met another woman who married him and then basically fleeced him for everything he had. She had two sort of 30 year old sons and they took everything he had, basically. And long story short, he ended up in a, in a, um, an old age home in, in Brighton before he came to live with us. He ended up in, a, in an old age home. And when he was there, he saw there was quite a few Jewish people, but there was no services for Jewish people. There's no synagogue or anything. So he set one up. And he wasn't an overly religious man, but he, from scratch, he set up, he set the whole thing up. He put markers in books so they knew where to read and everything. Off his own back, he just set the whole thing up. Quite an incredible character. I mean, and uh, during the war, he was a, ARP warden because he was slightly older during the war then to serve so the ARP went round making sure that people would you know switch their lights off and digging out bodies from where there'd been a bombing things like that they were like the another form of being a police officer but more to do with the actual war itself he was an ARP warden so quite, quite he had quite an exotic life if you like it was all tough and it was all you know he deserved so much more than he had, but it was quite... Anyway, he, from when I was young, he used to guide me. You know, uh, he'd come around to the house and give me advice. We'd go to his house and give me advice. Um, he'd, show me, he'd show me how to read in the synagogue, for example, because when I went to... What's one of the best pieces or most useful pieces of advice that he's given you? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I would say he awakened my thirst for knowledge. I think, see, my my father at the time was very busy because he was a cab driver, a taxi cab driver. He started that when he, we got the new house. Um, he worked oh, 18 hours a day. So he was either very tired when I saw him or asleep, basically. So, you know, my grandfather was one who, who awakened the knowledge, the, the idea of knowledge for me. You know, he told me stories from around the world and things like that. He sang me songs from Scotland and places like that, you know. So he gave me a much broader canvas to work with. So when I went to school, I found the people there quite restricted. They were only interested in their local area and things. And I was always interested in, you know, like the almost like the National Geographic view of the world. I just wanted to understand what was going on out there. Um, and he was the one who awakened that for me, both in my religion and outside of my religion. Powerful. Powerful. Yeah, certainly seen the uh, 
similarities? I'd like to think so. I mean, if there's one thing I would like to achieve, it's that. It's, it's, it's carrying on that, that legacy. And I've been lucky enough to work in schools and, and try and pass that on to kids, especially kids who most teachers and schools have rejected. So I've always tried to do that. I had kids' parents coming to me and saying, you taught my kids something when no one's school has been able to do that. So I mean, I'd like to think I've had that effect on some of the kids I've worked with. But without that grounding, you wouldn't have that. You'd be in a different position. I might be just wanting to be a stockbroker and nothing else, you know, without that kind of grounding, without that sense of purpose, that sense of more than just what you're about. Yeah. Sure. Um, okay, so then let's look at the age of 10. So you're about to go into high school, secondary school. Uh, well, I'm I'm uh, actually in my second junior school now. I've gone okay, to, yeah, I've, yeah. It was a school that was a private school that I didn't get. So on my first day, I got in huge trouble for throwing one of the boys' hats onto the roof. And we all wore hats. How did that happen? Well, we all wore hats, and I didn't even understand why we were wearing them. We looked like some comedy show. Uh, like something out of Alice in Wonderland. These small little chubby kids with shorts and funny hats. And I, anyway, this girl, guy started having a go at me, so I grabbed all his hat and threw it on the roof. And I didn't know he was the headmaster's like nephew or something. And so the headmaster oh, really right. laid it to me. That was my first day at the school. Um... I I had a love-hate relationship with the school. There were certain things I enjoyed. You know, like when you like certain subjects, you go with them, you, you enjoy them. I did well at sport. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I did well at sports in the school. Uh, you know, I, I took... I was not put... Well, they used to play a game called handball, which was like football, but with you had it in your hand rather than by your foot. And they, they had a whole tournament in the school. And uh, I was not put in my, my year group's first team. So I started a second team, a B team, and we beat the A team on the way to the final and we got beaten by the, the top year group in the school. But we got all the way to the final. Yeah. Um, um, so that's my kind of, I loved the school. I didn't like the, 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 the discipline and the, and the stupidity of the you know class system of it all. I didn't enjoy any of that. And I ignored it all. And I remember at school, at that school, and in the park a few times before that. I think I went to hospital about four times by the time I was 10 by, well, well that time it was, I was walking across the school playground and a six woman kicked the ball at my head and it hit the railings and I had to go and have stitches. So I've had about three episodes of that between nine and 10. And these are all attacks on you because you're Jewish? No, 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 not at all. Nothing to do with that at all. No, 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 no. Oh, right. Okay. No, just random kids, stuff. Right. Just random yeah. boys being boys. Nothing to do with that. Yeah. And the other thing I haven't mentioned to you is um, I have a real affinity to dogs. We grew up with dogs. We always had dogs in the house. My mum will tell a story how she used to have a golden retriever and she left me and the golden retriever outside the house in a pram and the retriever just guard me. She went on and did her things. And I remember when I was quite young, me and my sister were bathing together about, we must have been about three or four years old or something. And my dad came home with a, a Labrador, a tiny puppy, and put it in the bath with us. 
And so, so, when, so since I was four, we've always had like dogs, pairs of dogs all the way through my life. So I've always got a dog. Huh? Do you remember your first dog? First puppy? Yeah. How old were you? About four. Four. Yeah. Okay. Do you remember the name? I think it was Honey. And what kind of dog was it? A golden lab. A, a Labrador. But it's, um, they call them golden labs because they're yellow. And how long did you have this dog? So all the dogs we had, we'd get a dog, and then we got, when he got about four or five years old, we'd get a puppy. So they kind of always taught the younger one how to grow up. And that was constant until I was until now. <laughs> We've always had dogs. We moved about 20 years ago to to Alsatians, to German Shepherds from Labrador. Okay. So I grew up for the first part of my life with the gold, uh, gold Retrievers, Labrador. Was, was there any particular reason? No, 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 not that I know of. No, uh, I, I generally, I think I prefer the German Shepherds because they are slightly more active. The, the, the Labradors are much more passive dogs, which can be a bit boring. You know, <laughs> just lie there all day. They're like cats; they just lie there all day. But I mean, they go for walks and things, but they lie there all day. But German Shepherds are quite active dogs. They like you, you know, to throw the ball for them, and and they're more, they've got more spirit in them, is what I mean. Um, okay, so we covered your. Whew, I think we're up to 10 years now. We're nearly a, a um, sixth of my life so far. Yeah, yeah. And um, <laughs> we're about to go into secondary, secondary school. school. Yeah. From your second primary school. Correct. To the pr uh, private school. Um, so that second school. What? I only was at for, I suppose it would be about three or four years at maximum, maximum, probably less. Um, so I didn't really get a feel for it at all. <clears throat> and my mum wanted me to go to a grammar school so that, because she wanted me to go to university and they streamline, so they separate you from the kids who are doing badly so that you, in theory you learn better. And I had to get a bus to the school, which was about forty-minute journey. Um, and after, you know, like when you start any school, after a couple of years, you get to know everyone on the bus, and you're partying around and all sorts of things. Um, and uh, well, I can't remember much about that school. To be fair, all I remember was it was, it was an all-boys school. So my my middle two schools were all boys schools, and the on the beginning and the last schools were mixed schools. Okay. Um, okay. I remember with the with the with this this, this sec, for my first secondary school, I remember we had two girls schools, both sides of us, so we were always happy. You know, we, as soon as you come out of school, you're always bumping into girls. That was always good fun. And I remember once being given the choice of having a detention, writing lines or having the cane. And I said, I'll have the cane, please, because I knew that if I got on the bus, having had the cane, all the girls would start massaging your hand and making you feel better and stuff. So that was definitely the option I went for, because the other two, you, you'd end up being late, get missed the bus, miss, everyone, or you've, miss all the people you travel with. It would be quite a good uh, thing to do. So 
I definitely took the cane a number of times. <laughs> wow. That was quite funny. Um, wow. Um, what, do you remember the first time you got the cane? No, nah, I think I was in that first school I was saying, you know, that, the, the first private school. I mean, okay. you have to remember, after a while, you know, it only works a couple of times. Once you've had it a few times, it stops working. And there were boys that had it way more than me. Way more than me. But I, I had it quite a lot. But there were boys that had it way, way more. I don't remember many girls getting the cane. Well, there weren't any in those schools. So there wouldn't be. But, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, it's just like, I can remember boys that were getting it virtually every day. And it didn't really bother you because it wasn't as painful as perhaps it could have been. Like it wasn't a belt, for example, which I had. I've been disciplined by their belts before, and um, it's not the belt's much more painful than the cane. If I remember rightly, most of the time we had the cane on our hands. Occasionally, it was over your backside, but usually it was your hand. Put your hand out and all that stuff, you know, which is fine. It hurt a little bit, and then you, it, it'd be like burning your hand on a stove. It hurts a little bit, and then you get over it. Wow. It's, it's uh, certainly been interesting to see how education has, has transformed. Well, and yeah, also, it's not just education, it's the whole child protection thing. That came in around mm. 79. So before 79, all the stuff I'm talking to you about was how it was. So when you hear your parents, your grandparents talk about how it was, that's how it was. You know, like, you know, yeah. the idea of someone picking up a, a shoe to hit you was, like, standard. You know what I mean? It wasn't... It wouldn't sh shock you. You wouldn't go, oh, quick, phone the police or anything like that. You'd be like, okay, that's where it is. And the problem was in that society, some people took it way too far. Mm. But it changed after 79 and it became like, you know, you. it became really hard for parents and the community to bring up kids. Like In those days, police officers and, and adults on the bus would give you a clip around the ear if you were being too cheeky or something. And you can't do any of that now. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not trying to make a judgment which was better at all, because I think they both have valid, validity and both have very, very negative parts as well. So I'm not trying to judge. I'm just saying that it was a different. Yeah. So one of the things about telling this story is you have to realise how different life was. Of course. You know, you, course. when you're when you're talking to your son as he gets older, you'll realise it's not just about saying what happened when you were young. It's also trying to explain what life was like. I mean, can you imagine? All the schools I went to, we didn't have a computer. We didn't have a phone. If I wanted to find a friend, I had to go and knock on their door. Sometimes I'd walk 20 minutes to go and walk, knock on someone's door. I'm 10 years old. Think about all the different things that could happen to me in that 20 minutes. All of the, all of the things I'm talking about in that time, you have to reflect back to that time. You know, for example, it was a time in football where people were heady, having, heading heavy balls, who today we realise causes things like dementia. But at the time, it was standard practice. You know, we would, when I was older, I played football over the marshes and that, played for two. We all had heavy balls and heavy boots. And that's how it was. Didn't know any different. And it was way worse before. You know, we had, we were called soft by our predecessor, who said, well, you know, football was much older in our day. <laughs> it's like every generation just absolutely of the same absolutely. Thing. <laughs> absolutely and that's one thing I'm trying to reflect here how life is secular it, it is very secular like that you know every generation does the same things which is why we end up with the same mistakes 
because we, we, we end up in the same patterns. You know, uh, drinking cultures, uh, violence, all these things, they're, they're repetitive. Mm. Uh, you know, there's a thing going on in school today about how much sexuality is in schools, how kids are, you know, some kids are molesting girls, vice versa, and all that. And that was all going on. It just, it wasn't, we didn't have social media. understand life really you know you're young you're trying to make sense of everything around you some of it all most of it was a learning curve boys and girls on buses and, and behind the bike sheds were trying to make sense of it all no one spoke to them about it you had to try and learn it i remember a wonderful film that but see that that's interesting putting it into that kind of concept because if if uh, you know teachers parents, people around children aren't educating children about these things, then they're only I mean, going I to go and I can't begin to tell you what would happen if you'd have been around in those days and you'd ask your parents, your grandparents to explain to you about sex. I can't begin to tell you what would happen. You wouldn't have been allowed out and you would have been very, very sore. <laughs> it just wasn't a topic for conversation. And I remember a film at mm. the time mm. It was a film that was meant to be, um, what's the word? Like, it was a film about the 50s and rock and roll where everyone had leather jackets and stuff. So it was meant to be a sentimental look back at the 50s. And one of the talking points for us as kids was one of the boys used uh, an elastic band as a condom. So we were speaking for weeks afterwards about whether that was actually possible whether that would actually work. <laughs> but at that age, that's what you do. That is what you do. And girls are doing the same thing, trust me. They were doing exactly the same thing in their own way. Um, and there's a wonderful film, most people have seen it, called Gregory's Girl, where this boy thinks he's going out with a girl he likes and ends up being passed to three other girls before he gets with the one that wanted to go out with him. And that's what life was like. It was, it was that innocent and that learn as you go sort of about it it was hilarious the same with alcohol the same with drugs the same with any antisocial behavior it was all the same we learned it as we went along and you know i, I think back to the because it was the days as well of things like football hooliganism and the skinhead movements and things like that and again all of that was just well they just went to see how far they could get and they grew up with stories of the mods and the rockers fighting a bright beach every bank holiday. And I guess every generation was thinking, well, surely someone's going to stop this. And when they realised they don't, well, let's join in with this. Let's have a bit of fun. And that's kind of what cult subculture was like in those days. And like, you know, today you've got CCTV, you've got squad cars, police everywhere. It wasn't, it wasn't like that in those days. The police were miles behind what was going on most of the time. And they didn't have a clue what was going on most of the time. And they'd be called eventually. Someone would phone them on a public phone box if you could get one that worked and say, quick, come, there's a fight in Brighton Beach or something. You know, it was just like it was such an innocent time compared to today where everything's videoed and recorded at such a young age. We've kind of lost that innocence, really. And that isn't to say, obviously, some people exploited mm. that innocence, of course. But I think you have that in every generation. Mm -hmm. Look, we've got CTV and everything. And you've still got cases like Harvey's worst Weinstein today. So 
you know, I don't know how much better we are off by having all this big brother technology. I'm not sure what, what we gain from it. Interesting. Um, so just coming back then to this this intersection of you going into secondary mm-hmm. school, um, what song would you... The music had changed quite time? a bit then. Um, we moved to a very new style of music. So the people we were listening to at that point were Mark Boland and T-Rex and David Bowie. The girls were listening to... Um, David Cassidy, Jimmy Os, Donny Osmond, and uh, the Bay City Rollers. So it was it, because what happened was that Top of the Pop started, and you could showcase your music on television, and people would hear it, and it would go into the top ten. And so we were listening to the new kind of music that was coming out. So I mean, I remember at the time, um, my favourite music was people like uh, T Rex and David Bowie. I was kind of listening to that sort of stuff at the time, and uh, Rod Stewart, that sort of thing, Elton John, Queen. You know, they were the bands that were around at the time. And we had a radical change towards the latter part of the 70s, when I was coming towards my late teen years, when punk rock came out. But that's a bit further along. Um, At this time, I would say, uh, you know, we had David Essex, for example, as well. There was a number of sort of um, young, interesting singers that were around. I think most people, if you speak to anyone of that generation, David Bowie will always be on the map. Queen will always be on the map. You know, the kind of music we were listening to. So what song would you pick to now that's a good question that's a that very good question period? that's a very good question but there's, there's a lot to, to pick from there is I a lot to pick from that. and it's, it's difficult to make a choice <laughs> because they were it's like every week people were knocking out great songs i think well i don't know i mean one song i really remember because it was just mad was rod stewart's maggie may which was a song about how he got corrupted from going to school by a prostitute so that's about yeah, that him one. being yeah, in Liverpool yeah. with a prostitute, a famous prostitute in Liverpool called Maggie May. Um, so that was a mad song of the time because it was just out of context or everything. Um, for me, T-Rex were the band that really shaped that era. They had sort of glitter on and high heels, boots and things like that. Um, so I think probably one of their songs would be what I remember. Um, and then there was the stuff that you listen to with your so my friends, older brothers and sisters would play stuff like Bob Dylan and um, The Who, Rolling Stones, that sort of thing. So that was like in the background, that was slightly more alternative stuff. Um, yeah. So the stuff you like from yeah. that, like Stay Away to Heaven, was everyone loves Stay Away to Heaven in that time. Yeah. Um, but I, for me, for, uh, you know, the, in that, you know, starting secondary school would probably be T-Rex. Or Rod Stewart, really. I liked a song by T-Rex called um, Children of the Revolution. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Which was not really about revolution, but it was a good song. And um, <laughs> and I liked Rod Stewart's Maggie May. I thought that was a good song. So that's the kind of stuff we were listening to, really, at the time. Um, you know, I'm preparing for Mubba Mitzvah. I'm, 
playing for the football teams and things like that. I started going to my first Arsenal football match in 1967 when I was seven years old. I'm sure I've told you this before. This is probably a good place to end today's one. But um, yeah, my dad said he'd take me to a football match. Now, my dad wasn't much of a football fan. If he had a team, I suppose it was West Ham, but he wasn't really that bothered. He was a cab driver. So I had to wait for him to come home to take me to the match because I'm only seven. Now, we had to go about seven stops on the tube line to get to where the ground is. But I just assumed we go in his taxi because that's what we normally did. Anyway, so I come home from school. I eat my dinner, supper, whatever. I've done my homework and I'm ready to go. And it's six o'clock. Now, I, I know the game starts around somewhere between seven and eight. So I'm ready to go at six. My dad's not even home yet. Gets home at half six. I go, come on, let's go, let's go. He goes, I've got to have my supper. Okay, so I wait for him to have his supper. Let's go, let's go. Hold on, let me just, you know, change my clothes and everything. Okay, fine. Come on, come on, let's go. Let's get in the cab. So I'm sitting in the cab. He's going, what are you doing? I said, I'm sitting in the cab. What do you think? He said, we're getting the, we're getting the train. I said, we're going to be late. It's about seven, quarter past seven by now. He said, just get in. Come with me. So we go up to the train station. We get the train down there. And when we go to the, when we come out of Arsenal, and bear in mind when, when I've gone when I was much older, it's always packed at Arsenal station. It was completely empty. And you, you walk a couple of yards so you get to the ground. And the big gates opened and some fellas came out to have a cigarette. You could smoke in the ground. I don't know why they did this, but some of them came out to have cigarettes, some left to go home. And me and my dad went in. Watched the game, go back to school the next day. It was great. Went to my first football match. We won 1 0. He goes, What do you mean we won 1 0? What team do you support? I said, Same as you, Arsenal. He said, Well, it was 1 all. I said, It wasn't. I was there. I watched the game, mate. It was 1 0. What was happening was my dad, the first three games I went to, got me in for free at half time. So I only saw half the game. Because okay. <laughs> the cab drivers have told him you can get in at half time. If you go to where the gates are, when everyone comes out to go leave early and whatever, you can get in. And he didn't want to watch a whole game. So he just took me for the half the game. So it took me three matches wow. before I realised there were two halves to the game. <laughs> Anyway, so I was going to football from an early age. And um, I think by my secondary school, I was going by myself, really. And in those days, so okay, so like going to the cinema, like going to football, like going to music, you paid on the day. You literally queued up and paid on the day. So going to football was like going to the cinema, which you just got on a bus, queued up and then paid your five pound and went in or whatever. Yeah. So, okay. Um, I think that we'll we'll wrap it up there, as I think we're about to kind of cross into those early teens uh, stages. So it'll be yeah. good to come. And also, back we've got this. sixty-four more additions um, to do, so that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So that has been Ice Cap This with Mark Wilson today, um, turning the tables. Yeah. Very much so. Very much so. It's been wonderful. I'm sorry it's been, if it's been I've, I've had to wake been... you up to close it, Jermaine. Oh, this this has been uh, 
fascinating you know just just the, the simply the having conversations with people having con- having a conversation with you every time we do a podcast and when we do our video chats and, and all of that it's marvelous marvelous so um, I, I, I this I, is, is certainly opening up my eyes into to some of the stuff that you but also I, I i i also life. remember working a while ago with a comp- an organization that used to record people for oral history because historically it was only famous people who had their story told so you know for me it's a big thing to do things on podcasts to record every people's lives because they shouldn't get lost like when you think about your relatives that shouldn't get lost we, we should have stories from everybody so I'm, I'm into interviewing everyone having this kind of dialogue because what shaped them was important and we can learn so much from what shaped people here what people where people come from other places so much we can learn um so it's an important um strategy to use stories as a mean you know oral stories are so important in the history of the world um, and we we kind of subjugate them to written or you know academic stories which are great but they only tell part of a story and behind, I've always found behind every great story, there's a bigger story when you talk to people about what was actually happening at the time. You know. That and more is what we hope to find out <laughs> <laughs> throughout Indeed. this succession of, of, uh, of, <laughs> of episodes with you. On well, thanks for listening, it's guys. It's been emotional. Thank Wilson. you. I am Jermaine G. And I'm not. I'm Mark. And uh, we'll be back with more I've Kept This, um, delving further and further into Mark's life. Um, I think we'll probably end up doing maybe the next 10 years. I'm happy to follow your lead. We'll we'll, we'll see. But yeah, it's been wonderful. Thank you very much. Real pleasure. And to the uh, curious Anarchy listeners who have tuned in, please. uh, be waiting with uh, bated breath or, for the next if you episode. find you have insomnia and nothing else will work try just listening to this just before you you lay it sleep and try and go to sleep it might help you <laughs> wonderful that's all for today good morning good afternoon good evening Thanks.